when somebody tweets something like, I'm really proud of this paper, or, oh, my, um, um, my friend just published this paper and it's like fascinating, or, or even, you know, even tweets that have nothing to do with like yourself or, or somebody you personally know, just like, oh, this is exciting. Like a, a scientist tweeting, this is exciting with a link to a, a preprint or a new paper is like, that is my, okay, I am, I am clicking on that. I'm going to see what's there. Welcome to Everything Hurts. My name is Dan Quintana from the University of Oslo. I'm here with James Headers from Northeastern University and a very special guest today, Brian Resnick, who is a science reporter at Vox.com. Thanks for joining us on the show, Brian. Hey, thanks for having me here. Now, I want to dive in and start talking about a uh, common concern from scientists when working with journalists, which is that their research is going to get misrepresented. Uh, I saw a Twitter poll uh, earlier this year which asked, should journalists let scientists review texts and quotes for accuracy before publication? Now, I don't really think the poll results were interesting, um, but what was really interesting was the discussion around the poll. And the, the general consensus from journalists that got involved was that uh, they would check quotes but not hand over a draft as this is a breach of uh, journalistic ethics. Now, th- this kind of stuff puts off a lot of scientists from talking to the media as uh, they don't think that any risk of misrepresentation is worth the trouble. Can you actually walk us through why handing over a draft would be a breach of ethics and uh, what you would say to journal uh, what you would say to scientists that are that are worried about this? Yeah, yeah, no, I, I completely understand the concern and uh, you know, nobody wants to be misrepresented or get their ideas misconstrued in the press. But um yeah, it, it's kind of uh, uh, and I understand why journalists and scientists would have um come at this from different different points of views but at least from our point of view is um the the number one thing in journalism is to be independent and to be you know have the ability to publish things without uh fear or um publish things without without like having to seek that you know higher approval you know we're we're an independent voice and we're, we're not beholden to anyone and this permeates you know no matter what uh topic you're covering you know if you're covering politics it's extremely important you know of course you wouldn't want government officials reading over reading over your stories if you're you know criticizing the government and things like that and and so that that standard kind of trickles down to all of the components of journalism it's it's a general rule that i wouldn't share draft before publishing a story or um and a lot of times i don't you know um you know if you ask me to like send quotes by you you know we can deal with that on a case-by-case basis so it's kind of just you know i think as a default it it's good and it protects us and it and it keeps us independent and you know when we publish a story at the same time it's all on us so if i have my story out you can blame me you can blame my news organization you can blame my editors you know there's a, at the end of the day the journalists you know we are um uh, some deal with this better than others but we're we're open to criticism we're open to you know um we're open to uh, taking the entire responsibility for what's written there. So, uh, what I would say to that is like, at least for me, I tell people when they, when they ask me if they can do that, I say like, uh, well, we don't share drafts, but we do take accuracy really important and we try to be transparent about corrections. If anything's wrong, we'll change it. If there, if, if there's, um, you know, if there's a follow up story to do of something that we didn't quite get at, you know, well, we're open to that. We, we hear you. Um, so it's, it's just different sensitivities. And, um, I, I would always hmm. stress that like it's not, you know, it, it's, I'm sure, you know, there are cases where, where it would make sense to send parts of a story to a person. Um, if I'm working on something particularly tricky, I might even ask somebody to, to read over something to make sure I didn't mess it up. But I, I think you can see it as like, you know, we are, um, as a default, we're going to, say no to those requests to, to maintain independence. But at the same time, it doesn't mean we're impervious to criticism or if we get something wrong, you can't call us out on it or you can't, you know, go to another news outlet and say, Hey, you know, Vox had the story, but they're completely wrong. And, you know, that's, that's how we, uh, that's, that's how those things get dealt with. 
yeah. Um, I'll get a, I got a good example for you when it, it comes to this. Um, I've, as, as might be expected from some of the fun I've had with scientific criticism, when that's picked up by journalists, the last thing that you'd expect on something that is covering something that's kind of outwardly conflict is that it's going to be run by the parties involved. Not as much as it would be sort of wildly inappropriate in that context. It'd be awkward. You know, you're writing a whole article about how someone's got something wrong and they really, really have. You can't call them up and check that for accuracy. Even if they talk to you, they're going to just raise objections about everything. Scientists have got a real good professional stake in raising objections to everything. So, you know, you, you, you run the risk of getting snowjobbed at something like that. And um, you, you, you see the kind of necessary role of being uh, some kind of independent arbiter of how the story needs to be structured. Yeah, there's, there's cases where it would feel wildly inappropriate. I think a lot of people are just, you know, scientists are concerned about accuracy and they're like, oh, if I hear one more thing about neural activity when he actually means bold signal, I'm going to shit a kidney. And it, it, it doesn't change the practical outcome of the story. So you also have two different perspectives on what constitutes accuracy. Yeah, yeah, and also, you know, what you what you're saying about um, getting criticizing people in public. You know, our standards of ethics, like at least where I work, if I am writing a story where somebody I'm talking to is criticizing another person, and if I choose to put that in a story, I have to contact that other person. I have to have give them some chance to respond. Um, you know, this this happens all the time, especially if we're we're if we're writing about a company or um somebody's research that that we that we're looking into and it doesn't seem quite right. You know, we always give people a chance to respond, but y- yeah, we we like being the arbiter of, you know, of so you got a chance to respond and I'm going to include your response, but I'm also going to include my analysis and I'm also going to include the, um, you know, the, the voices of other people and, um, something at Fox that we do more so than, than some other publications. Like we're allowed to be analytical. We're allowed to not just say he said and then she said, you know, we can, we can see where the weight of the evidence is and we can see, um, you know, if you read my stuff, like I'm not, I'm not a super firebrandy type of writer, but um, if there is something like I don't have to pretend that one side of the argument is equal to the other. If 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 that's not the case, if you know, if I'd done due diligence and done research and feel like uh, that is the right conclusion, um, so yeah, good. That whole thought, yeah, in in science, if you try to maintain that whole kind of, and now for a balanced perspective, we turn to a racist, he's on fire. That really wouldn't work when it comes to some things. Uh, So, yeah, I mean, you you have to play that role. It, It relies on you, of course, for that model to work, to not be some Gumby in a newsroom smashing out three things a day, picking up press releases from uh, one of the places that, produce scientific press releases, turning it into an article about how we're all going to die from eggs and then, you know, rolling it over twice more before you go home. Um, you're talking sort of, I mean, that you're, you're obviously, uh, you, your stuff is kind of long form, really. I mean, not super long form. What, what is it, medium <laughs> uh, form? How many it, forms it can, are there? It can change depending on, on the topic. But, yeah, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about, like, how we approach science journalism because I think it's a little different than some other outlets okay. and some other newspapers even. So I work at Vox.com um, or Vox. Uh, we have all sorts of different products now. We have podcasts, and we just had this new uh, show on Netflix come out. But, anyway, I, I write for our website primarily. And um, this web- this news website was founded in 2014, along the idea that um, what's new is not always necessarily what's the most important. So whenever there's a big thing in the news, we try to we try to get, dig up the most context. We try to you know we call them explainers. We're trying to like orient people to. Um, so in the U.S., you know, there's um, there's been a lot of stories about uh, Me Too or Bill Cosby or Harvey Weinstein, and we tried to like really give people the okay, you, you're seeing these news stories 
stories about these people. What do you need to know? What context? And um, uh, that's why I was re- really excited to get this job here three years ago, because I think for science, that's a really refreshing thing, because what's new is not necessarily yeah. what's the truest. Uh, and what's new is not necessarily the thing that's going to withstand the test of time. So we do do some of the, okay, there's a new study coming out in science. We're going to cover it if it's newsworthy. But more so, we're asking questions and we're asking questions and then seeing like, what are the best answers science has to offer? What are the, um, you know, what is the weight of the evidence? Uh, we have a little bit of a series called Show Me the Evidence where we ask some big questions and we try to do, um, as best as we can and consult with the, with the right experts, you know, uh, meta literature review and try to get, you know, what the consensus is and, and try to explain to people, you know, what it means in their lives. So, um, and I, I love this way to approach journalism because, or approach science journalism because it's really question driven. And, and I think a lot of the times, um, the questions that scientists are, are working on are, are sometimes more interesting than the answers. And also sometimes the answers are, it, it does a disservice if you don't put them in like a historical context or if you don't show that, Totally. If you or if you don't show that people have been working on these questions a very long time, um, just to give one example, so a few years ago, uh, Journal Science had this uh, study on prairie voles, and you know these are uh, some mammals that they mate for life, and and they they, they kind of give. Um, I think that the study that Science came at, uh, came up with, uh, the, no, sorry, I think the study that Science published was about um, was about yeah prairie voles and like whether they felt empathy. Or for one another, and they they use some um, they they did some clever tests to to show that like uh, prairie voles might actually you know feel things for one another. Um, but for me, I took that question and I was like, okay, all these news outlets are going to be writing about this. But you know what? I looked at the literature and said, like, wow, people have been wondering whether rodents and small mammals have feelings since like the 1950s. There's this huge uh, pile of research here. And the question is still basically unanswered or not, you know, not completely answered. But at the same time, you know, I was having these conversations with people that are like, no, this question actually matters because we get to know, you know, where on the evolutionary timeline, you know, emotions and feelings and empathy come into play. And it, and it helps us understand our place in the world. So I love whenever the opportunity to do something like that, just to not look at like what the last answer is on a question, but ask the question and, and see the story that traces when, when you look at how people have tried to answer it. Yeah. The, the, yeah, that ambulance chasing model works so badly for science, you know, like no one's, no, no one's ever studied fish consumption before. And now there's a new study that says if we don't all eat fish, we're all going to blow up. So everyone go out and eat fish is, you know, ignoring 140 years worth of research on dietary proteins and fats and a million billion epidemiological studies that exist without context. It's just some shit that someone said. And yeah, that's, I think that's one of the biggest fears that scientists have about putting what they've done into the public domain like that is the fact that it's going to be kind of isolated sometimes studies even look a little bit weird in isolation i mean if you just just like dan's research actually crosses it over does. With i'm very interested because in prairie of the uh, endocrinology involved and I, I think um it's yeah prairie voles are super interesting in the context of they're, they're used as a as a model for for, for human relationships because i think it's uh one of the i think i think only three three percent of uh, mammals have uh, demonstrated relatively monogamous relationships, including the prairie vole, and um, it's uh, it's 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 a huge area of research for endocrinology. So it's uh, yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting question there. Yeah, and it, and the bigger question is like, uh, you know, I know prairie voles aren't rats, but like, do rats have feelings? Like that for me is a fun question, and uh, it's a big topic to explore. And and for me, like, once I get through some of the the back 
um, some of the studies that have been done before, that latest study in science like rings to me as as being more. It, it feels weightier to me. It feels more. It, it feels like I know it's less important, but it also feels like you know it's building off this long tradition of you know really well-meaning scientists and and um, psychologists and biologists trying to peer into the emotional lives of animals. And you know it's going to be hard to like really round out the answer to that question but you know people have certainly tried and and i think that's where good stories are but but going back to what you're saying about you know researchers feeling um you know they, they don't want their their work taking out of context and and i'd say like you really do have a lot of power in, in shaping the story so um a lot of our you know, a lot of ideas come to us via press releases, um, yeah. you know, f- through universities that you work at through, you know, I don't know how involved you are in that process of how you're marketing, you know, the story that you want to tell about your research. But, you know, certainly whatever the headline is on that, that press release matters. And, you know, um, and probably less so for um, people in my position. Like I'm a dedicated science reporter. Um, I'm going to go to a few conferences a year. I'm going to have conversations with people just to ask them what they're working on, things like that. You know, I have other ways to find stories, but um, maybe more local newspapers or or people places that don't have dedicated science reporters. You know, they're going to find it through press releases. And if a big fancy university is sending a press release, you know. That university has spent a long time working on their reputation and working and projecting the sense of authority to the world. So there is, you know, a lot of reporters are, are, are going to trust universities and they want to, you know, and, uh, so you, you really do have a lot of power in shaping the story or, you know, then once you get on a phone with a reporter who's, you know, maybe got that press release and, and, you know, is, is asking you about like why fish is going to, why eating fish is going to raise his IQ by 10 points. You no, know, you can say, whoa, wait, 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 you know, this is, there's another story here and, and, and it's okay to redirect, um, it's okay to challenge the assumptions of a journalist's question. It's, you know, if somebody, if I say something wrong in an interview, like I love being corrected because how else am I going to get it right? Uh, so it's, uh, you know, like I go into these stories with a really, you know, I, I am not a scientist by training, but I, I like to think of myself as like a good student of science. And, um, what, what's, what's really nice about this beat in particular is like a lot of the sources, um, your colleagues and scientists like all around, all around the world, you're quite literally teachers. And, um, you know, for me, it's just such a, um, it's such a great thing just to be able to call up any professor in the world and you know get a, like a 30 minute one-on-one lecture with them like a, a people spend a lot of money for that oh, uh, that's a so, quite an enviable position actually I, <laughs> I wish i could get people to respond to my fucking emails that easily yeah be, uh, i mean they don't have to respond but you know a lot of and and that's what's nice too people are are really generous with their time and their thoughts and all that but you know it's not like we're coming or i'll i can only speak for myself but it's not like i'm coming into these stories with like an assumption like this is what you know the headline's gonna be like i'm spend most of my time being confused and (laughs) asking dumb questions and you know i only need to be smart in print so if i'm on the phone with you and and you know i i sound like i've you know not really well versed in a subject you know you can you can you know, you can school me. I'm on the phone to be schooled. Like, I, I want to learn from you. Uh, I'm going to probably be talking to some of your colleagues, you know, and find out if, you know, I, you know, no one person is, is, has a monopoly on, on knowledge. Oh, um, uh, I don't no know. One... If you read some comment sections, I've met a few people <laughs> who've had a monopoly on all knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. I try to avoid some of those people, but, uh, Fox doesn't have yeah. comments, does it? No, we don't. Um, yeah. That's, that's it, probably it, wise. Yeah, it's probably a good idea. Now, you, uh, there, oh, go on. Uh, you mentioned, uh, headline, headline writing before. And I, I was wondering how you, how you toe the line between writing something that's going to 
catch the reader's attention versus something that's just uh, over-sensationalized clickbait. Uh, Quite often when you see stuff on Twitter, you'll see a scientist go, oh, look, I I, I spoke to the reporter. They said this, but look at the headline they chose. How do you go about choosing these headlines? Mm, Yeah, this is is the art. Uh, This is it. our stories, you know, they're they're not worth anything if nobody is reading them. So, the most important part about headline is really the topic you're choosing and and the question that you're trying to answer. So, like for me, it's less about the headline than if like your story is about a great idea and it's about a great simple thing, or it's about something that's really going to work with people, then the headline is easy. The headline, you know, just comes out, um, uh, you know, you don't have to, you don't have to like tease people into reading it because they're interested in it. Uh, so those are always the best headlines. So like I did a story about, um, people who have a late chronotype. So these are people who naturally like they drift later and later in the day. Um, their sleep, their sleep cycle is really hard to get back to an earlier sleep cycle. They, they, they're really frustrated and, you know, they get called lazy and there's some good work in chronobiology and, and other in other fields, kind of really validating this idea that some people really do just keep shifting later into the night and they need uh, more time. So the headline for that, like, and I talked to people who have the extreme version of that called delayed sleep phase. And like, um, you know, the headline was that like morning people or no people who um, it was something like late sleepers are tired of being discriminated. Discri- late sleepers are tired of being discriminated against, and science has their back. And like, you know, this is a true story. Like, there's nothing mm. baity about that. There is good science about you know individual differences in sleep preferences, and there's good science about what happens when you disrupt a person's preferred sleep cycle. And, you know, there's some um, signs of health consequences and there's a lot of research in this area. And it's also true that these uh, late sleepers are tired of being discriminated against. (laughs) They're also tired. So that that headline did really well. And uh, it was just because I think the idea of that story is really strong. Um, So sometimes when you get into the more clickbaity headlines, it turns out like your story isn't that good mm. and that's that's harder to fix so but in terms of like writing headlines yeah we um we workshop them with you know a bunch of reporters like i'll give them i'll write like eight headlines for a story and then show them to a bunch of other reporters and we'll kind of discuss okay. you know which are the best angles and we have some tools to a b test headlines so we want um you know some small tweaks can make a difference so you know stories that are framed negatively or positively or um you know stories that are framed like towards you as a person uh, or you know just as people in general like little tweaks like that we we, we make and but honestly, it's more like astrology than anything. Like we have some numbers and some mm. things that feel like science, but we're just actually guessing. Yeah. Oh, that's it. But I just have to get one thing out of the way. Um, people who wake up bright and early first thing in the morning um, uh, are scum and are probably <laughs> the, the descendant of an alien race that has no business on this planet. Uh, and if if that's you, I'd get a twenty three in me straight away to make sure that you're not part lizard or something. Um, yeah, you, you're not. No. You're not to be trusted, and there's something wrong with you. Um, yeah. Sorry, I forgot what I was going to say. But at the same rate, really hate early rises. Yeah. Yeah. No, at this, at the same rate, sometimes like a really bad headline, like really obscures the idea that you have. Or like if you're writing a wishy washy or like a garbled headline that's much too long, like I want. I want to, the headline is not like what the story is about. The headline is why you should read it or mm. should, you know, satisfy the why you should read it. So, you know, if it's about something in the news, you know, we, we, we mentioned something, you know, that people can, um, immediately grab onto. Uh, it's hard to, it's hard to say if there's like an exact, uh, way we do this, but sometimes, 
you know, the headline is, is just plainly, it's just really plainly spoken. So, um, I did a story the other week about chronic pain and using psychotherapy to treat it. Mm. Um, and, the, and this is just a, a thing that, the, you know, there's some research on using cognitive behavioral therapy to treat co- chronic pain. And, um, um, there's, there's good meta reviews suggesting it works, although in, in a different way than like an opioid pill w- would. And so the headline of that was just a hundred million Americans. Americans have chronic pain. Very few use uh, one of the best tools to treat it. Um, and maybe you can argue with me, like what I mean by the best. Like there aren't many great tools to treat chronic pain. No, there are um, different types of tools. Yeah, but yeah. So, but still, that 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 headline I think captures, at the very least, it captures this fact that very few people who go to their primary care physician with chronic pain or, or have a hard to diagnose problem, um, or you know these people who get who go from specialist to specialist, never finding actually what's wrong with them. N- um, not a lot of people hear about CBT or some new forms of psychotherapy as an option. And mm. I want that, I want that headline to really hit people who, who didn't know about this. And it's also, you know, if I, uh, there are, there are ways to obscure, to be like obscure. Uh, like if you opened up glossy magazine, you might see a headline, like, like the dark mystery of pain, you know, or something <laughs> ominous like that. But uh, those things don't really, those things don't really racist. work anymore. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's it, Brian. That's interesting because I, I think the worst headlines I've seen, uh, I think they're more common in newspapers where people are knocking out content, quote unquote, <laughs> in a hurry. And I think they're written by sub editors who are looking at something and going, how do I kind of hook this? Because we've got a million other things to do. What you're describing is not the kind of give it to the person who writes the headlines, uh, like section editor sort of person to to make something that's going to jog people's attention. So it's yeah, a no, bit we're, different we're, to traditional sort of headline writing. Yeah. Um, well, you know, at the end of the day, my editor and my editor's editors probably have final say, but um, we are mostly crafting our own headlines and mostly, mostly, or at least we were presenting our editors with options um, and and all that. Um, it, it's funny also, I think in your, your email to me, you, you mentioned a piece that I did on p-values. Um, yes. And I had a very yeah. hard time headlining that, that story because um, <laughs> yeah, it was this... You and literally everyone else, that's all right. <laughs> it's not supposed to be straightforward. I will have under- we wouldn't be arguing about some shit that people came up with in the 20s. <laughs> Yeah, but yet it's like a really important, like for me, what's interesting about that debate, like I'm not writing about it all the time and, you know, it's probably a little bit too in the weeds for some of my readers, but you're, you're kind of hitting this debate is around the question of what counts as scientific evidence. And that's a really fascinating question and has probably changed over decades and will probably keep changing, um, as, as we get new tools and, and as, you know, understandings of science change. So. I kind of just wanted to get into the story and and to give like a good general interest. And the headline we we ended up on is uh, what a nerdy debate about p-value shows about science and how to fix it. And I, you know, there's a there's a bunch of things going on in that headline. Like I, I you know, I wouldn't know if I actually got some emails from people angry that I use nerdy. Um, <laughs> oh, that, that cheer I up. Yeah, uh, but it basically was just trying to say like, okay, this, this, strap in for a little bit of a, a ride into methods, but this is actually important and actually hits on a fascinating question. Like I was saying, like what counts as scientific evidence that, you know, you and your colleagues are all, I see you on Twitter. It's, it's, it keeps, you know, keeps your <laughs> never heart ends. beating. Uh, it never ends. It's, it's a, it's a extremely important question. And, and, uh, what's interesting, like ev- people on different sides of this question are also thoughtful and, you know, they, they care about the answer and they care about it in different ways. And, um, so yeah, with that headline, uh, I, I could see, I could see how people might, might be a little turned off to it, like maybe that and how to fix it. Uh, uh, you know, there's obviously no perfect solution, but people are talking about like how 
how to fix it, you know, how, how like the, at least, at least it tra- traces the outlines of how people are thinking about making science better and more replicable and all that. So I, I hope that headline was effective there. Yeah, also, that was, uh, speaking, that was- speaking as a nerd, um, uh, using the word nerd in that context is uh, the, the never ending argument about uh, P values. Um, I don't know if I have any authority to say this on any formal level. Actually, it's pretty obvious that I don't. But uh, the use of nerdy in that context is really okay. I mean, this is a debate that bores the ass off a lot of actual scientists who use them for a living, yeah. who, 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 who run out of patience with the complications and just throw their hands up and say, stuff it. Yeah, yeah, if you can't call that nerdy, then um, you, you, it's, it's going to have to be particle physics, and that's all you're left with. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, now, Brian, Brian yeah. You've, you've spoken about this concept of, uh, of, of good work or good science in, um, when it came to looking at that sleep research and, and other things, mm-hmm. and I'm just curious as to what sort of heuristics yourself or other scientists use to actually determine whether, whether a finding is robust and not just uh, statistical noise or, or, or worse. Yeah, so this is the rule in journalism, and I suspect it's the rule in other disciplines that are, you know, involves thinking. If you don't know the answer to a question, you know, call up somebody who does. So, um, I, if, if there's something I'm unsure about, like I will ask somebody who, you know, I either trust or seems to have a good reputation or a scientist in good standing, like, oh, what do you think about this paper? Or like, what do you think about this argument that I see? Mm. Um, you know, no story. Um, uh, if I'm, do- if I'm really getting into a story, you know, I'm going to talk to like four or five different researchers on a question. And, you know, uh, if, if I get a sense that, that something is shaky and you know, I'll, I'll avoid it or I'll, I'll explain that. But yeah, basically I'm just asking, I'm, I'm, I'm asking people <laughs> to help me answer that question. Yeah. There, there are some things I can do with the sniff test. Like I, I now understand the problems in like social science around small sample sizes. And, you know, if I see an article from, 2002 that was on 60 undergraduate students at a liberal arts university you know i know th- i know to keep digging and to see okay what happened <laughs> that, to the nice so knows knows uh, to keep digging there's no mention of setting it on fire um yeah, to see like what happened to that idea or, and also, yeah, to see if like a big paper from 1995 has been replicated. Like these are little sniff yeah, yeah, yeah. tests I can do, but mostly, yeah, I'm, I'm relying on your colleagues to help me, <laughs> to help, you know, I, I, sometimes I'll, I'll send emails about like a new, paper in nature or science and just ask like is this do you think this is worth covering and you know if enough people say no i'll or if if people i respect or 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 seem to have a good hold on this topic say no sometimes i'll yeah i'll skip it yeah that's a yeah i I like the the fact that i i kind of envy this of you that you have the freedom to walk away from any given thing you do, you're not you're not forced to. You know, it, you, occasionally, if you if you start working in an area and you're a scientist, a lot of the time there's a a continuation that's expected. You have to review things that are in it, and you can you know you you've you've got to keep a program of research going. But you can go, uh, yeah, it seems like a high probability that this is bullshit. Yeah, I'll do something else. <laughs> you pick anything else you want. Unfortunately, sometimes, sometimes we can't ignore that though. Sometimes if, 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 if something is really problematic and is really getting uh, sticky, um, it's, it's really hard, you know, it, uh, for us to ignore, especially if it kind of grows a newsworthiness in itself. So I, I can't think of like a specific study. Uh, recently that we've done this for, but we've definitely done like the type of story that's okay. Everyone's writing about this study, but it's wrong. Yeah. Yanny um, and Laurel. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's, that's a little bit different. Um, the example I was just thinking of was the, the debate around President Trump's mental health. And I, I really, uh, I, I wish it kind of would go away that, you know, you have people on cable news that have no understanding of, of mental health, like going on about his erratic behavior and like kind of armchair diagnosing him. And then there is a, also a contingent of actual psychiatrists and academics who are 
who are giving them some weight. But anyway, like at the end of the day, I, I really feel like it's a really, it's a really sticky situation and I wish we could avoid it. Um, but because enough people were talking about it, you know, my editor is like, we need to, we need to like give people, I don't need to come down on any sides of it, but I need to give people, uh, my readers who are encountering this idea, I, I need to give them like a basis for understanding the, the context for it better to understand why, um, to understand the history of like why it has been problematic for people to diagnose others over, you know, via, via CNN. Um, and also, and also it also turned into be an interesting avenue to explore the, the idea of like, what's the difference between a personality and a disorder and like, where does the line draw? And, and, you know, there's not great answers to that question. So there, there were like legitimate scientific opinions and also to like ask people how they felt about the goldwater mm-hmm. rule and psychiatry which is which has some really interesting you know first um freedom of speech implications mm-hmm. and all that so it it turned into a fruitful topic of area but yeah I, like you know I, I i think a lot of those debates are are not very fruitful so <laughs> there 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 yes and you were saying yanni and laurel which is is impossible to uh <laughs> to avoid because I saw that you actually um, were appeared on, on the Weeds, which is a, a Vox podcast uh, discussing yes. the, the, the Goldwater Rule, which we'll uh, which we'll link to in the uh, in the show notes. But now we're going to take a quick break, and we will be back soon with more Everything Hurts. If you really like us, and that obviously should be everyone because we're brilliant, the best thing that you can do to make sure that we thrive in whatever Z-grade notoriety we're collecting here is go to iTunes and leave a review that says we're friendly, pleasant, hygienic, and intelligent. Um, it, It will be mostly a lie, but it's still good for the algorithm thing. So, have a go at that. Anyway, back to the hopefully more focused and probably better intentioned podcast. Welcome back to Everything Hurts. Today, we're chatting with Brian Resnick, science reporter at Vox.com. Now, Brian, where can people find you online? Yeah, well, I'm at Vox.com, and, you know, on any given day, I probably have a story up. But I'm also on Twitter. It's at B underscore Resnick. Um, you can also email me. I'm at Brian at Vox.com. I was the first Brian to work here, so that's it was nice <laughs> to get Brian that email. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, just Google my name. I'm, I'm Googleable. Uh, yeah. I understand that you're um, now working on a project uh, looking at stories that no one knows the answer to. Can you tell us a little bit more about this? Oh yeah, this is this is an extreme germ phase. But if any of you have um, or any of your listeners have suggestions for this, I, I really want to build out a pitch on this. So I recently read a book which I really loved. Um, it was called "We Have No Idea." It was written by um, a physicist, uh, Daniel Whiteson, and it was illustrated um, by um, his name is Jorge uh, Haim, and. Um, it, it, it had a really funny premise. So it was basically going through all the things in physics that nobody knows the answer to. And in physics, it's basically everything. So there's, you know, we only understand what 5% of the universe is made out of. And I, I just found it to be such a fun and truthful way to talk about science. And, you know, and also like exciting too, like where, where you have this void, this mystery, you know, you pre, uh, this is where I think science is really optimistic because, you know, inherently you believe that these questions do have answers and you can find them eventually at the end of like a long, hard life in, you know, working in a lab or something like that. So I, I was, I was hoping to kind of like take that, that germ, you know, they did it with physics, but there's just so many great unanswered questions everywhere. Um, unanswered questions about the human body, about, um, I'm sure there are things in psychology and, well, there's a lot in psychology that we don't know the answer to. Um, there's even like fun. I did a story a little while ago about the surprisingly, um, recent, research into why ice is slippery like so for for years like oh physicists, yeah yeah that's not yes. as, for people listening that is nowhere near as goofy as it sounds 
Yeah, yeah. And and this and it's like why it, and I think there's like some surprisingly complex math behind why a bicycle stands up straight and um there's this crazy theory about how your nose uses some quantum mechanics to smell things and no one quite knows if that's the right the right answer. So I, I was hoping to um yeah to to get some just get some ideas of like what are some great questions that nobody knows the answer to. And I, and like uh, so I welcome anyone to email me at Brian at Vox.com of some questions that no one knows the answer to. And and more importantly, like not just like to have a question for the question's sakes, but hopefully questions that yield good, good stories. Like I want to talk to people who are trying to answer these questions or hope or have been humbled in, in failing to answer these questions or, um, who want to, um, uh, who, who believe, you know, or maybe there are interesting debates around or whether these questions have been answered or not. Uh, so just a, a fun thing I'm hoping to pitch as a, as a longer series, or if not a longer series, just as a, a good, a good fodder for a few good stories. So yeah, you're definitely getting emails about the nature of consciousness. Yeah, yeah. No, I've heard, I've heard some of that already too. But like, no question is. I, I would want to stress, like, no question is too small or too insignificant or too silly. Um, it would be good to have a, a good mix. Uh, I got a, I got a question. Yeah. All right. Say I am a professional scientism whose science is sciences is, is all day, and. I'm trying to do promo on my own work and I don't necessarily want to go through a media department at my university or take a more traditional kind of route for getting interest. Yeah. What would you do if you're in that position and you're just trying to draw it? As someone who is, you know, in command of a lot of people's attention, what would you do to draw attention to something? <laughs> What are you? Wow. What are your options? I'm in command of a lot of people's attention. This is this is powerful. Uh, <laughs> I I, I thought forget. that sounded good. No, no, it does does sound good. I I, I always forget people actually read this stuff, <laughs> even though I have the 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 data to show people really do. Um, it it is I don't know somehow it just never quite feels real. Um, but okay, so how how to get attention for for your work? One, um, you can email journalists you like or that you've been following their work. I love getting those emails from, you know, less less and less of my stories come from press releases, and more and more of my stories come from just you know conversations with 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 scientists and sources I have. Um, also, like I've gotten a lot of great stories just from. Twitter. So I follow a lot of scientists on Twitter. I'm not really engaging in their conversations. I don't really understand half of their conversations. But uh, when somebody tweets something like, I'm really proud of this paper, or, oh, my, um, um, my friend just published this paper and it's like fascinating, or, or even, you know, even tweets that have nothing to do with like yourself or, or somebody you personally know, just like, Oh, this is exciting. Like a, a scientist tweeting, this is exciting with a link to a, a preprint or a new paper is like, that is my, okay. I am, I am clicking on that. I'm going to see what's there. I'm going to see if it uh, makes sense for, for my audience. So, you know, use social media. Um, some of us, meaning reporters are, are creeping in your, in your chats, you know. Uh, we're, what we're is it the it. kids say? Do you do you slide up in the DMs? Slide the I DM. slide into the yeah. I'll generally email you if if I, if I want to, but I'll email like, oh, I saw this on Twitter. This is awesome. And actually, I would say my some of my favorite stories come f that way. And for me as a journalist, too, being competitive with other journalists, I find it as a, as a really nice way to get um, unique stories. Um, so yeah. So use social media. Um, also, and you pitch can people. yeah pitch people directly. Uh, also blog. Um, sometimes it's nice to find things you know from an academic blog, or if I'm just googling around on something. Um, or I, I've been seeing more. There there are more and more websites dedicated to getting academics. Uh, to write for a general audience, like the conversation. Um, we also have a section here at Vox. Um, it's called the big idea. It, it's probably more like more public policy wonk 
oriented, but they're looking for um, they're looking for writers from academia to to weigh in on on current events for us. Um, so there there are outlets, um, and then I can imagine you know I don't really know how the press release system works, but you know if it's your work being written about, I, I'm I would you know advocate for you to uh, get in and on that process and, and see you know what what your universities are uh, are are publishing in your name. Yeah, right. Um, so what's the um what's the best way to I mean I, I don't think most of I've done some writing when I say, Oh I, 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 I pitch you like I know how that's structured in my mind. So someone who's never pitched something to anyone before, what's like the ninety second version of because there's a million resources on how to do it on the internet, but this is a specific context. Right, you're trying to pitch a a science story to like not a fucking lifestyle section editor. Who's it? Did you see this thing Teen Vogue just had? I'm not I'm not making this up. How to get your best summer vagina ever? Yeah. <laughs> so that person's you can't pitch them a science story um, because obviously they've got their hands full. No pun intended with other stuff. So how do you have 90 second version? How do you as a scientist pitch a science story to an interested journalist? Yeah, one sound like a human being. Um, you don't need to like write me a study abstract, you know, right? You can, you don't have to be all that formal either to say, hi, my name is so and so. Um, um, I, I think you might be interested in this story and then tell me why I might be interested. You know, tell it to me like you would tell your smart but non-wonky friend or like your smart but non-scientist friend about it. Um, and also like if it really, impacts our current events so like a lot of what what we do like has to be something that people are are going to find you know because it's an important um because because there's always news going on and we always want things to like elucidate the news so if there's like a current event that you can link it to or like a much talked about thing in in the public consciousness that you can link it to absolutely like tell me the most practical reason for why this matters and um yeah then we'll go from there is is that helpful mm. that seemed pretty vague no, no that's that's that's, <laughs> that's, that's really that's really good and I'll, I'll give you i'll give you an example i know some people who do uh um, so it's like psycho psychometric sort of research. And there was a thing, uh, a while back where, uh, the, the president took the, the mocha. I don't know if you know oh, yep. what that yeah, is. The Montreal it's a Montreal cognitive, cognitive, cognitive assessment. And the Montreal cognitive assessment is basically if someone hits you in the head with a shovel for an hour and a half, do you still have all your marbles? So it's really, really, really easy. So, I mean, there's a one where you have to name a camel. There's a, there's a picture of a camel and you write, it's a camel. So this this thing came out and it was sort of, ah, uh, oh, don't worry, he's fine. He got a 27 in the mocha out of 30. And that's obviously 90%. But it's a scale for like people who've suffered trauma, stroke, or facial reconstructive surgery via car accident or something really terrible. So at that particular juncture, um, people who are working in psychometric measurement or understand something like that, I mean, if you wanna if you wanna put your name for it, that is a shit hot opportunity to go out into the world and find someone like Brian and go, hey, I study cognitive assessment and we've got new thing X and it's not the mocha and this is what you probably use instead. Yeah, so, that would be perfect. <laughs> right. Good. Okay. Um, I mean, that, okay, that it's also I mean, it's also a funny example because of the camel naming aspect of things, which generally doesn't come up in science too much. Um, yeah. Yeah. There's also, not a lot of funny you, hooks. I would also say, like, they like the your story pitches, or if you have ideas for something, they don't always have to be like a new a new study. Like if you come across mm. you know something fraudulent, <laughs> you know please tell somebody about it. Uh, we can we can work with you to help investigate. Also, and I I don't think this is quite well used, but you when I say you, I mean like scientists, like you can do some journalism yourself in a way. Um, like, I, I, like sometimes there 
are preprints that I see of studies that really um, are valuable as preprints because they are addressing something in the news. Uh, so like last summer, um, there was uh, some researchers who did this psychological assessment of the alt-right, and they just wrote did it on um, Mechanical Turk. Um, and this was around the time in, in the U.S. when um, there was um, that... Um, Charlottesville uh, protest where a bunch of these neo-Nazis descended on this t- this town, and it was just an ugly, ugly thing. And and the alt right was front page news everywhere. And um, you know this 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 psychological assessment, you know, it's an MTurk study. It wasn't perfect. You know, it's it's really hard to sample um, on MTurk in a way that's at least this is what I understand. Um, it's really hard to sample in a way that's going to be like perfectly representative or or even you know th- there are a lot of caveats there but at least you know on the, these m turkers who said like i am a member of the alt right you know giving them personality assessments asking them about um dehumanization asking them about you know feelings of white uh superiority or discrimination like that was really helpful in that moment to see that preprint and be like this is something in the news um this is information that um you know, my readers don't know about that. I didn't know about that. You know, I can, I can label it correctly and say this is, you know, preliminary study. They're, they're starting to investigate this. You know, it's not a perfect survey, but damn, there are some really interesting and frightening things in this. And, uh, I saw that on Twitter, but like, if you have something like that, you know, please, please send it. Or another example, um, I, I had a, a friend in psychology who, um, he was, um, around the time that Trump was, um, in the U.S., there was this big, uh, hubbub over, uh, a- a NFL football players kneeling during the national anthem. And, um, he, there was some tests around, like, uh, there's this idea called moral reframing that if you, like, if you change the, um, the moral valence of an argument, certain people will be more willing to accept it. So this, this researcher friend I had did that study, like kind of in the moment when that was happening, Mm. Um, when, when, you know, this, this was a really like, okay, if you reframe Trump's argument for against kneeling during the national anthem in a, in a different moral frame, does that change like conservatives or liberals feelings about it? And um, I I forget exactly what he found out, but you know, at least something like that, like if you have these psychometric tools, if you have an ability to spin up a survey on MTurk or uh, whatever forums you use to collect information, and it informs the news, and it also like potentially helps you understand your theories better, or gives you like a spot check of your theories because things you know happen in the news, and you know you can you can gin something up to to test it. Um, like there's also been some really interesting research. Um, uh, David Rand at, at Yale has like spun up a few quick surveys, um, in reaction to things Facebook was doing. Um, Facebook was, uh, they were asking their users to judge, um, uh, news, uh, for their, like they're asking their users to judge news websites for their veracity and for their trustworthiness. And, you know, David Rand was like, Oh, we can, we can double check Facebook's work in real time and things like that are really cool. And I think they're starting to pop up now and they're not really, um, I, I feel like there's, there could be some more cool crab collaborations between journalists and, and social science researchers, at least in, in trying to understand current events with the tools you have, which I certainly don't, I can't, you know, survey a thousand members of the alt-right, you know? Uh, so that stuff is useful. And I encourage like, if, if this conversation sparks any ideas in people's minds to, you know, help us understand current events, um, please, like I, that is awesome. And we can, that, that's, that, those situations would be like a little less of like, you're a source and maybe we can collaborate but um um sometimes yeah you you'd just be a great source for a story there and speaking of um speaking of, of scientists doing science communication I'm, I'm assuming you follow a lot of science blogs what's one thing that scientists can do to improve their sci- psychom writing in general Hmm. Um, yeah, just like I was saying before, just like talk like a human, um, write like a, you know, there's, I'm sure you all know that like, you know, there's a gulf between academic writing and writing for a general audience. (laughs) 
So just, just, you know, there's a great, I'm going to muck it up, but Ed Young, who's a great science writer at uh, the Atlantic, he says something like, it's something like, never assume that you're, it's something like, don't assume that your readers know anything, but don't discount their intelligence either. Like, assume they're like really intelligent but really uninformed about something, it, it, which is a tough needle to thread. But I, I think that's that's the right place to be in. Right. Like you don't want to belittle people by you know by like talking down to them, but you also don't want to assume they know what you're talking about. Uh, this is <laughs> I don't know if I'm being entirely helpful here, but yeah. it's just practice. <laughs> yeah, it's something you can help me out for my blog posts. What's your is, should I have an official policy towards dick jokes in science communication? <laughs> Uh, I would advise against TikTok. <laughs> my, uh, you know, you, you don't have to read wanna... anything I've written. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, you know, yeah. There's uh, like fart jokes are funny. Like you know, <laughs> jokes around like common human experience are not potential. You know, uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, it's so, incredibly uncommon human experiences. I'm assuming all scientists are mad to start with. We, we've uh, now that we've hit the topic of dick jokes. I think it's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you can hear it. You can hear in his voice. He wished I hadn't brought that up. <laughs> yeah, but no, I, Thanks, I think Dan. humor is really great in science communication. Like there is a book that came out recently called "Does It Fart?" and each page was just uh, an animal and it discussed whether it farts or not. And really, oh, yeah, you know, it's written that. by two biologists who like. You know, told also in this book instructed. Uh, you know, they had great information, <laughs> so it's it, you, you can use humor. Yeah, I suppose it gets into things like oh, because it, it eats this and its GI tract does this, or you know, this one doesn't even have an anus, so how would it? Gosh, <laughs> yeah. what a silly question! And they question. had a page on whether dinosaurs fart, farted or not, and like that's just a brilliant question. Did that they? There should be. Uh, they are assuming yes, but they uh, they don't know. <laughs> Assuming go. yes. Yes, oh. they're assuming yes. They're assuming that because of their size and because of their diets, they probably had some type of um, hindgut fermentation yep. going on, yep, like yep, like yep. horses do. Um, even though I don't think birds fart. So if birds are like the evolutionary descendants of a common dinosaur ancestor, like maybe ah, something happened there. There's so, an error in the fart continuum. Yeah. There's an error. Yeah, this is <laughs> rewrite the textbooks. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Oh, start from oh, we, scratch. We like, to ask, we, we like to ask our guests some uh, quick-fire questions about their career. And we want to ask you, Brian, um, in regards to science journalism or science in general, what have you changed your mind about recently? Yeah, so, and, and we discussed this a little bit, but, like, things like Yanny and Laurel, like, the, like these viral things that pop up, like, uh, in the past, I probably, like, just rolled my eyes at, at them and, like, kind of wish that my editor doesn't ping me to, to jump on it. Hmm. Um, but I have come around to the idea that, you know, when you have something that is drawing a lot of attention, you know, you can really use that to direct people to the thing you want them to learn about. So like when with Yanny and Laura, like this is a little this is a little dumb, you know, like, oh what do you hear? What do you hear? But no, there's like something to be said about like how our reality is just an interpretation and, you know, we're just we're just guessing at, you know, our, our the things that we see. And uh, you can get a little into that science there and then who knows, maybe that inspires people to learn more about perceptual illusions or or, or whatnot. But um I, I I increasingly see value in and and getting into those things, but also like being serious about them and, and and giving people good information about something they're obviously curious about. Hmm. It's it's a boon time to be a perceptual psychologist right now. It's uh... <laughs> well, um, and secondly, um, other than uh, the the books you mentioned before, uh, we have no idea, and uh, and does it fart, which we can uh, which we can link to in the show notes. Uh, what's uh, one book that you would recommend uh, our listeners should read? Oh, uh, yeah, I would. I would really recommend. We have no idea because, uh, or at least, I would recommend books on physics um because when you talk about science communication i really love how physicists think about their work like when i'm talking to a physicist about like gravitational waves or something like that they always have like this elegant metaphor that's so visual and and um even poetic
poetic. And I think they use these metaphors to help them understand this, their science because it's pretty far out there. But I, I think physicists go through a really interesting process, or at least the ones who really r- write well about physics, um, they go through a really interesting process of of finding like the beautiful language to describe these vast cosmic mysteries. And and I think they get really creative in ways where like sometimes when I'm talking to physicists about cosmology, like it's simpler than when I'm talking to psychologists about memory, you know, and maybe it is simpler at the end of the day, but it, it also comes down to like how, um, how they describe it somehow, some somehow just always hits me harder. So I, I, I like I love how physicists approach science communication. So if that's a if that's an okay answer. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, no, it's, it's good. I think they, they they get a little lucky in the sense that um, you are forced to talk in terms of metaphor. You're forced to visualize things that are in higher dimensions. There's no, unless you're going to talk about the the, the technical. The, the technical elements of it, which are understood by vanishingly few people, even if you listen to physicists, not some other physicists. So you, you, you're in a, a situation where language and kind of your conceptual approach has to do some heavy lifting. Yeah, and, and also in lucky, that book I mentioned, they, they they use cartoons in fun ways. So I don't know. It's just I feel like you're right. They're they're probably forced into that, and I don't know. They're I I like it at least. Brian Resnick, thanks for joining us on the show. Yeah, thanks so much. This is great.